All right, well, what a beautiful thing to be able to add into our service, an opportunity to dedicate our families and pray for them. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I have had the opportunity to dedicate our own three children on this platform. And I can't even tell you how meaningful it is to know that we have a community here at PBC to support us in the whole range of parenting emotions from incredible joy to all of the other things that come with parenting as well. Uh, so we do love our families and bless them this morning. Well, uh, this morning we are going to be continuing our series in the first chapters of Genesis. We're gonna be looking at the end of chapter two, and uh, this is the end of the creation narratives that come to us in the book of Genesis. After this week, we're gonna take a break for a Lenten series in Joel, and then we're gonna come uh, jump back into Genesis chapter three. So this morning, uh, it's, a, it's a good kind of place to break in the book because we're at the end of chapter two. And in Genesis one and two, we have the only picture that we get in all of scripture for what life looks like before sin enters the world. So these, these are foundational chapters for helping us understand who we are, who God is, how we relate to one another and to him and to this world in which he has placed us. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and start by reading our text together. We'll be in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused, caused a deep sleep to fall on the man while he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a, father and mother shall, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is one of the passages that we have in scripture that serves as a foundational text for the institution of marriage. It sort of lays a framework for us to build on, but this is a passage that is not just about marriage. This is a passage that helps us understand what it is to be human, about a certain kind of ache that we all have in our lives and about how the Lord wants to go about meeting this need that we have. I want you to take a look at this image here. In just a moment, there we go. We have an image of a woman who is up on this mountain summit. Now, uh, there's a few things that sort of stand out to me as I look at this image. One is the beautiful mountain landscape that we see in the background. Also, the, the rugged terrain that we see in the foreground that this woman is on top of. And also, we can make several observations about her. 
we notice that she seems to be prepared for the task. She's got her hiking clothes on. She's got her hiking poles. She has a pack on her back with what seems to be just enough to get her where she needed to be to summit this mountain. And perhaps most noteworthy of all, the fact that she is completely alone. I think that this photo captures so much of the ethos of our culture, a kind of rugged individualism, self-determination, a kind of drive to, to go out on our own, to strike it, to summit a mountain and to see how far we can go, oftentimes alone. That's where this woman finds herself. I wonder what this image does to you, what this image does in you as you look at it. Perhaps for you, it fills you with motivation and inspiration and excitement. Perhaps it encourages you to go out and climb your own mountain. Perhaps your response is one more of fear, like, oh, I'm glad I'm not there. I'm not sure I would ever want to be where she is. But I wonder if for some of us, this image draws to mind our own existential sense of loneliness. The feeling that we have that sometimes though we might scale a mountain, we find ourselves there alone and lonely. And we wonder where to go from here. A couple years ago, uh, when I first got COVID, I was isolating from my family and I decided it was a good time to binge watch the latest season of Alone which seemed appropriate given the circumstances. If you're not familiar with this, with this show, you have 10 contestants who are brought out to this remote wilderness area and they're dropped off all in separate areas with just the clothes on their back, a pack with some gear and a suitcase full of camera equipment that they need to lug around and film themselves because, you know, capitalism, like they got to make some money off of this show. And so, uh, so they, they, they film this show where the objective is for the contestants to last as long as they can out in the wilderness on their own, living off the land. And whoever can make it for the longest period of time, they take home the cash prize. Now, you can imagine uh, that um, there's a number of things that might cause somebody to want to tap out. And anytime they wanted, they had a satellite phone, they could call and say, I'm done, right? Some people had a very hard time procuring, procuring adequate shelter and the elements got to them and they said, this is enough. Other people couldn't get enough food and they said, I'm out. Some people got scared of the bears, some got scared of the weather, some got sick, right? All kinds of things that would send contestants home. But these were professional survivalists who are very good at living on the land. And so a number of them would, would be able to survive, not just for days, but even for weeks and for months out here in the wilderness on their own. And for those people who were able to make it past the first couple weeks, one of the most common things that sent them home was loneliness. Out here on their own, and they get to a point where they just say, I, I can't do it anymore. Right? I, I'm homesick, I miss my friends, I miss my family, I can't stand being on my own any longer. There's this deep loneliness that they began to feel when they were out there alone. But loneliness is not something that we only experience when we're out on a solo camping trip, when we're off by ourselves for weeks at a time. Loneliness is something that we experience daily in our lives. 
In fact, loneliness is one of the fastest growing threats to our health and well-being as people today. In 2019, the UK famously appointed their first minister of loneliness, a government position, a government official appointed to deal with this growing problem of loneliness in their nation. But this is much broader than the UK. And just last year, our own Surgeon General released an 85-page document addressing what he called the, the epidemic of loneliness and isolation a major mental and physical health problem right here in our country. And, and in this paper, he, he cited how loneliness can be as destructive to our health and well-being as humans as smoking 16, 15 cigarettes a day. That this is a real problem for us that we have to deal with. So what do we do what do we do in light of this loneliness? Well, Genesis 2 starts, Genesis 2.18 that we looked at starts with this statement, it is not good to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. And, and, and even as we hear that, there might be some among us, the, the software engineer, I mean the, the introverts who say, I thought it was good to be alone. <laughs> I really like being alone. And, you know, I do as well. I, I myself am an, am an introvert. And when I see that photo or when I watch alone, there's something in me that goes, yeah, I would kind of like to escape to that place for a little while. Right? That's normal. That's natural. And even part of following Jesus is going to be practicing solitude, the discipline of spending some time alone. And yet, we still live with just this deep, Maybe for us, it's right underneath the surface sense that, that we are lonely, not just alone, but lonely. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's interesting that this is a problem that takes place even before the fall. But it's a problem that God has a solution for. And we see it here starting in verse 18. So again, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God wants to address this issue of the man being alone. But we have to ask ourselves as we look at this verse, why is it not good for the man to be alone? Right? Why is this a problem that needs a solution? There's a number of different ways that we can answer this, this question. One of them is kind of a theological way. We could, we could say, well, God exists as a triune God. He is a trinity, three persons in one. And so in the very nature of God, God exists eternally as a community of love. The Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father for all of eternity past and all of eternity future. God is, in his very nature, a community of love. And so we would presume then that as those who are created in his image, that we are also created to be in community, in a community of love. We can answer the question that way. We can also answer the question more through a psychological lens and note that psychologists universally agree that companionship and relationship with other people is not just kind of a nice add-on, not something that's nice if we can have it. 
It's actually one of our core needs. It's something that we need to survive and to thrive as human beings, this relationship with other people. So we could give that kind of psychological answer. But if we look at the text, there's another kind of answer that we see. And that's in what God says here in in verse 18. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. Now, now that phrase, helper fit for, is a very interesting phrase. It's It's a unique phrase in the Hebrew. It doesn't show up anywhere else. It's made up of two different words in Hebrew, one for helper, one for fit for. The word for helper is a common word throughout the Old Testament. Most most frequently, it's used of God being a helper to people. Uh, And it basically just means exactly what it sounds like. One person coming alongside another person to help them accomplish something that they cannot do on their own, right? Pretty straightforward. This word fit for is, is a more unusual word. In fact, it seems like maybe it's just kind of created right here for this moment. It's made up of two prepositions that are put together, one meaning like or similar to, one meaning opposite or different than. So a helper fit for is somebody who comes alongside to help with a particular task who is both similar to and different than the one who is being helped. So we know that the solution to this, the helper fit for the man, is going to be the woman. Someone who is both similar to and yet different than him so that they can work towards the completion of a task that neither could do on their own. That's the sense of what a helper fit for is. So God sees that the man is alone, that he has a a task that he cannot accomplish on his own, and God wants to give him someone to help him accomplish that task. Well, what is that task? What is it that the man has been given to do that he cannot do on his own? Well, let's jump back earlier in chapter two, starting in verse five. We read this, we looked at this last week. When no bush of the field was yet in in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And then jumping down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So just before this passage, the task that has been given to the man is his work. He's in a garden, the garden needs a gardener. He is given the task of working and keeping, of cultivating and protecting the land, creation. But he needs some help with it, that he needs some some help in accomplishing this task that God has given him. He needs a helper fit for him. One translator uh, takes that phrase helper fit for and translates it as a a counter partner. I think that's such a beautiful and accurate way to translate the idea here. That as the man goes about his work, he needs a counter partner. He needs someone who is similar to him and yet different from him in order to accomplish the task that the Lord has given him. And this is so wise of God, is it not? I mean, we can just see and we kind of know intuitively that if we are going to go about a task and we are going to bring together a team of people to accomplish this task, whether it's in your work or in some other sphere of life, that we want to bring together a team of counter partners, of people who are similar to each other, 
that they can work well together. We can have some team chemistry that, you know, everyone kind of jives, right? We're similar too, but we don't want everyone to be the same. Right? You don't want everyone with the exact same personality, the exact same skill sets, just like clones of each other. If you're building a team, you are looking for a group of counter partners to bring together in order to better complete the task that you've been given. And this is why diversity is such an important thing. Right? On the one hand, when we bring together people of different backgrounds and races and ethnicities and men and women together, that yes, there's something about that that just reflects the image of God more fully than any of us can on our own. But there's something that is just good for the team in having people together from different backgrounds and perspectives because they bring unique gifts and skills and talents to the team. <coughs> and so God is bringing together this team of counter partners in order to accomplish a task that he has. Primarily, in this case, the task of working the land, of keeping and cultivating creation itself. But if we jump back a little bit further in the text, to the end of chapter one, we see that there's another task that has been given to humanity. We see this in chapter one, verse 28. The man, uh, humanity has just been made, been described as being created in the image of God as male and female, and then we read this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's this language of being fruitful and multiplying. This is a task that is given to humanity to, to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it, but to be fruitful and multiply. And then we get to chapter two and we read that God starts by creating a man, well, how is he supposed to be fruitful and multiply, right? That's the, the obvious question that could be in mind. Well, we got a problem here, right? He's not gonna be very effective in multiplying himself throughout all of creation without a counterpartner. And so another major problem in the text that is being solved by the creation of the woman is that of having babies, right? Of, of populating the earth, not just with other people, but with image bearers of God who are ready to step into the task of ruling over God's good creation together. So he creates the man, he puts them in the garden, he realizes that there is a need, that there is a lack, and he gives him the woman in order to do that. But before the woman comes though, we read that all of the animals are brought before Adam. And he's looking through them in order to try to find this counterpartner. And he concludes, as we would expect, that nothing in all of creation up until that point is suited for the task. Then we read about what happens next, starting in verse 21. So the Lord God call, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In all of creation, there was no suitable partner for Adam in the work that he had been given by the Lord. And God answers that need in him by giving him this woman. 
It's beautiful that the way God does this. He, he puts Adam to sleep to show us that he's, he's passive in this process. This is not something that he is doing. And then he reaches into Adam and he, he takes out a part of him. And from that part, God makes a woman for him. It's obvious here that what's being emphasized is this, this intimate connection between the two, that they are made from one another and for one another. There's this deep sense that they belong together, similar to and yet different from one another. And it's not incidental that God takes a rib from Adam. This is actually a kind of a, a unique word to use for rib. The only other place that shows up in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to it as the, the side of a building. It seems to have the sense of, of side, like it's pointing out that, that God takes this rib from Adam out of the side, right out of the middle of him, out of this part that's close to his heart, to his very center, to show this connection between the two. One commentator describes it like this. The woman was not made out of the man's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. There's this deep sense of connection, of belonging, of intimacy, of fitness for one another in this work that God has given to them. And as God brings this woman to the man and he wakes up and he looks at her, he says, finally, finally, right? I've looked through all of creation. I've found no partner. And finally, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That, that's familial language. When we talk about being related to someone, we talk about the blood, Right? We're related by blood. We're blood relatives. We say, we say blood runs thicker than water. In the ancient world, at least in the Hebrew context, if you wanted to talk about family, you would say, we are flesh and bone. That, that that's what connected a family together. And so here the man looks at the woman and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Finally, I have a family. Yes, this is the first marriage in the Bible, but this is also the first family in the Bible. And that's important to point out because not all of us are married. If we make this passage only about marriage, we isolate the 30% of adults in America who are single and the 50% of young adults who are single. This is not just a passage about what it is to be married. This is a passage about what it is to be human and to be in relationship with other humans. The man looks at the woman and says, I finally have a family, a place to know and be known, a place to love and to be loved. I want to say about, more about that in a moment, but first the last two verses of Genesis 2. It ends this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. There's a, a, a mystical, kind of mysterious, yet profound connection between the husband and the wife 
that is described as a, a one flesh connection, a one flesh union. That, that even as the woman was taken out of the man, out of his flesh, so now there is a reuniting of the two. And, and clearly we can see that this has in mind a, a physical union, a sexual union that will take place between the husband and the wife, and yet this is so much more than just that. That there, there's a deep soul level connection between the husband and the wife. Matt Chandler, one pastor, describes it as a mingling of souls. That there's this, this connection, this intertwining of the husband and the wife together. A few years ago, my mom was going through some challenging heart issues and we didn't know exactly how things were gonna play out. And I was, I was talking with my dad about it and he made this comment that I will never forget as he was talking about what it was like to, to grieve the sickness of his wife. And he said, you know, sometimes after all these years of marriage, it's just hard to know where I stop and where your mother begins. That's the kind of picture that we have here in this one flesh union that takes place between the husband and the wife. And then it goes on to describe them as both being naked and not ashamed, which as a 16-year-old testosterone-filled boy when I was reading this, it's like, this is both like the best and the like strangest verse in all of scripture. <laughs> like, what is going on here with this description? But it's not, it's not incidental, right? And it's not just physical either. It's not just describing the situation as we have it. It's this picture of intimacy, of no secrets, of no need to cover, no need to hide, it's a picture of vulnerability and the connection that can flow out of true vulnerability. You see, I don't think it's that they both were so confident in their physique that they were able to walk about without shame while they were uncovered. I think rather it's that they were so confident in the love of the other person that they were not afraid that they would be shamed even if there was reason. That they were not afraid that they would be hurt by this other person because they knew that they were loved. And is that not what we all long for? To be in the kind of relationship with another person where we can be totally open, totally honest, totally exposed for who we are and still know that we will be loved. This is an opportunity that is provided in marriage, in this union between the husband and the wife, this perfect community of love on earth that we see in Genesis chapter two. And so let me give voice to the question that some of you single people in the room are asking right now. Well, does that mean that marriage is the solution to the loneliness that I'm feeling? And all the married people shout out, no, <laughs> no, it's not, right? At least not this side of Genesis 3, right? We don't live in Eden. We don't live in a Genesis 2 world. And even if marriage is intended to be that kind of thing, it's always going to fall short in this life. We're always going to get hurt by the people that we're closest to. It's just part of the fallen world that we live in. And so what do we do? <laughs> we're... We're single and we're lonely, we're married and we're lonely, we're divorced or widowed and we're lonely, 
is this just our plight? Well, in one sense, this side of eternity, yeah. This is going to be part of what it is to be human. But I think that there are some things that we can do as a church, as the people of God, that would push back against this loneliness and allow us to, to experience a kind of redemption even before Jesus returns. I've got three things, three things that I want to encourage us with as we think about this loneliness that just comes along with the human condition. One, I think that as the church, we need a renewed sense of church as the family of God as the family of God. Here in Genesis 2, we have the creation of the first family, and all throughout scripture, family is so important, that there's so much that happens in the family, that family is, is the building block of society, and it, it's, the, it's a shared experience that we all have to be born into a family. And yet as we get into the New Testament, we see now that family is used to talk about the people of God, that the church is the family of God. And I know we all come from all different kinds of experiences with our family, and there's probably some of us that we hear that the church is family, and we go, I knew that's why I didn't like it here so much. I didn't like my, my real family all that much either, right? Some of us have had painful experiences with our family. And you know what? The church is going to be a painful experience as well, but it can be family. It can be connection. It can be community in a deep and profound sense. And I think that there is a special obligation on those of us who are married in the church to make sure that the church is a family for all people, where all people are welcomed. That when the divorced person comes into our community and is aching at this pain that they have experienced in their life, that they can find a place to be known and loved that when the single person who, who is searching for a spouse and feels this longing deep inside of them for a soulmate, someone to mingle their soul with, that the church can be a community to welcome them in, to love them, to help them to experience this part of what it is to be human. When the person who finds themselves attracted to people of the same sex identifies as a gay Christian, but in devotion to their discipleship to Jesus, wants to walk a life of faithful celibacy, the church needs to be a family for that person. And it's on those of us who are married to make sure that the church is that. And sometimes we're just not. We just don't go far enough in really living what it is to be a family but by the Spirit of God, I believe that we can, we can do that, that we can create a piece of heaven on earth here where we can be a family that reflects all people in the kingdom of God. Church needs to be a family. A second word for us, a second point of application, I think we need to think about marriage and families, nuclear families, more like missional pods, right? We, we have the man created and put in the garden and given a task by God, the work of God to accomplish, but he needs a partner. He needs someone to do it with him. And so God creates a family. Right? Families are not created just to help us solve this, this idea, this sense of loneliness that we have, though family can certainly help with that. 
But this first family is created not primarily to solve an issue of loneliness, but to solve the fact that there is work to be done and we need families to do it. And so let's not just think about our families as people that we get to know and love and be in relationship and and provide and be provided for by. No, as families, we are primarily missional communities going about the work of God to a degree that we may not be able to do or in different ways than we could on our own. One last encouragement for us as we think about as the church, how can we kind of deal with this sense of loneliness that we all have? And that is to recognize that our loneliness is actually one of the greatest opportunities that we have to be pointed to God. That our, our loneliness is meant to serve as an arrow that points us to God. That as we experience loneliness and isolation, as we experience this deep desire to really be known and to know, to be loved and to love other people, that we could find ourselves drawn to God as the only one who would truly satisfy that ache that is deep in our hearts. And even when community is great, even when we don't find ourselves feeling lonely or isolated, which by the grace of God, many of us do not in various seasons. But even from that place, as we have a taste of real, deep, true, authentic community and relationship, that that too would stir up a longing for us along the lines of how much better will it be when we are united with God face to face? our relationships with one another, broken as they may be, joyful as they may be, are meant to point us to God. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would meet us in that deep ache in our soul that longs to be in relationship with each other and with you. Lord God, would you release us into the world, whether we be single, whether we be married, whether we be in a healthy relationship or a painful relationship, whether we be divorced or widowed, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would bring community around us and send us out into the world to do your work, to bring you glory, to declare from the mountaintops together that you are worthy and that you would draw us deeper, deeper into relationship with you. Give us a holy longing for that day when we will be united with you again. Spirit, we ask that you would do this for your name and for your glory.